As we open Genesis 22, we've come to one of the great stories of the Bible. When I use the word story, I'm not in any way implying that this isn't history, because it certainly is. But as a narrative, it's one of the most powerful moving stories in all the Bible. This is because it's a type a foreshadowing, a down payment, a picture of the very crucifixion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having left his homeland at God's command, Abraham has become fabulously wealthy and he's prospered in the land of promise. Having left behind whatever earthly inheritance, he has received the promise of a heavenly inheritance. Having longed for a son who would inherit all the promises of the covenant and in whom his family would become great. Abraham has at last, in his old age, received a son by his wife Sarah, Isaac, the son of the promise. Tonight we're going to be pointing out some of the types that are found in this text. So just a few reminders about types. Two weeks ago, we began studying some of the types in the Old Testament. There are certainly far too many for us to do completely. But two weeks ago, we began by looking at Adam the first type of the Bible, the type of the head of a race, one who acts for others, how he is a a picture, a dim, faint picture of Christ, who is the head of the new covenant, acts for his people. And then one week ago, we studied the ark, the type of the one place to hide when the wrath of God is poured out. Tonight, we'll see our, our third type of Christ in the saga of Abraham and his son, Isaac. Just a few reminders about what types do. They are prophetic. They point towards something that will happen in the new covenant. And types are divinely designed. They are not coincidences. They are not accidents. They point to something that are things that are integral parts of the history of redemption. It's the Lord's sovereign rule of history and his infinitely exact knowledge of the future that makes typology possible. He knows what is to come. He knows what persons and what events are at the center of human history. And so the Lord is able to embed into history and weave into history all manner of anticipations to teach his people to long long for the Savior who will come long before events come to pass. And with a true type, with a real type, there is a clear point of resemblance, of correspondence between the type and its fulfillment. No, No reaching or forcing needs to be done for this to be seen. So for example is the Old Testament sacrificial system, which is a clear type of Christ's atoning work, or the priesthood in the Old Testament, which is a a type of Christ's perfect ministry as our great high priest. But tonight we'll be looking at one of the clearest types of the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac. We will be looking at uh, a father sacrificing his only son. And we'll see many places of correspondence. Let's seek the Lord's help now at this time. O sovereign Lord, we come to you as the only wise God, the one who is sovereign and omnipotent. We ask that you would open our eyes and give us understanding of this text, that you would keep all distractions all far from us, that we would hear your word now and learn the great lessons of faith and that we would clearly see Jesus Christ pictured here and we would love him more deeply and trust him more fully. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Look carefully at Genesis 22 with me. You'll need your copy of God's Word open as we we see all the points of correspondence here between this text 
in the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we see when we open Genesis 22 is the testing of faith. As our narrative opens, look carefully at verse 1 because this is what sets the whole story for us. We are told that God tests Abraham. The testing of your faith should be a familiar subject. I hope you do recognize that when, when some affliction or something that difficult comes to you instead of just saying, this, this is a hardship, I'm having a bad luck day, recognize that God frequently tests his people through trials and hardship. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1, that God tests the faith of men to see if it is genuine. So how severe was this test? Look at the specifics of God's command in our text. We are told, or Abraham is told in verse 2, the parameters of the test. First of all, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Ishmael, Abraham's other son by the bondwoman, has already been sent away in the chapter before. And so Abraham has put all his eggs in one basket, Isaac. Abraham has no backup plan. And notice the Lord says to him, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And so the Lord is saying, I'm going to test you at, at not with a marginal character, but the one you deeply care for. And then the Lord says in the test, go. This would involve an arduous trip. Go to Mor- the land of Moriah. And then finally, those words that no doubt spun Abraham's head around. Here's the real point of the test. Offer him as a burnt offering. In other words, Isaac is to be taken up on a mountain and slaughtered. And then his corpse is to be utterly consumed with fire so that the smoke rises up to God. Now stop for a minute and get inside Abraham's head. This command that's given in verse 2 goes against Abraham's common sense, his natural affections and his hope. It's a test that touches his closest loved ones. It's one thing to make a choice to believe in God when you know you're the only one at risk. But what if trusting in God means the risk of your loved ones? So this test, as they set out, allows for plenty of time for thought and deliberation because the place that God commanded Abraham to go, look at verse 4 carefully, the place that God commands Abraham to go is a three-day journey. And by the way, Moriah, where they are headed, if you know your biblical geography, is where Jerusalem would stand one day and where the temple would be built and where sacrifices would be offered day and night, and very close to the spot where Jesus would be crucified and offered as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. Now, we, you and I, the readers today who read in the light of the new covenant, we are told up front that God is is testing Abraham. Look at verse 1. We're told that. But Abraham isn't told that. He's kept in the dark. He doesn't know the purpose of God in this regard. God doesn't say to him in verse 2, think how differently this would be if you had a preface like this to verse 2. Abraham, this is only a test. Nothing bad can happen to you. The Lord doesn't do such a thing. The Lord is, gives him no reason for requiring such a sacrifice. Look carefully at the word in verse 2. All Abraham has is God's command. Period. This is very analogous to Job's test. When Satan was allowed to take away everything Job had, children, health, wealth, and yet Job still clings to God in faith as he cries out in Job chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. 
And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Abraham's test, just for those of you who are 60, 70, 80, they became harder the older he got. If you're a believer and you're 20 or 30 and you think, you know, I'm sure that as I get older, the test will get easier and easier. And by the time I hit, you know, when I'm as old as Dan Dodds, by that point, the test will just be so simple and light, it'll be like falling out of bed. Well, what you notice with Abraham is his tests become progressively difficult, more difficult the older he gets and he matures in faith. So think about the nature of Abraham's test. First, as a younger man, he was called to leave his homeland. Then he was called in Genesis 13 to part from his relative Lot. Then he had to give up his plan in Genesis 17 about Ishmael. And if Abraham thought he could just spend his golden years in spiritual retirement, he would have no such luxury. The older he gets, the harder the tests get. Abraham's faith is being tested at several points, but the one that is clear in this test is the supremacy of his love. Who does he love most? You remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10 when he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. God doesn't ask Abraham for flocks of sheep or bags of gold. He asks for an only son, a beloved son. And to make the trial hardest, he commands Abraham to be the agent of execution and sacrifice. How can this be happening? God had made all sorts of promises to and about the seed of Abraham. God had promised to give the promised land to Abraham's seed. Abraham's seed would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. This seed had been longed for, hoped for, prayed for. How can God keep his promises now if the only son, if the seed is slain? Now, I want you to look at verses 3 through 7 and be astounded. We've seen the command, we hear the parameters of the test, but I want you to notice what we find in verses 3 through 10. It's breathtaking. For those of us who take disobedience so simply, Abraham obeys. He obeys God's command. That's, if you're going to write a heading over verses 3 through 10, that's what you'd write. Abraham obeys. Abraham enters this trial holding on to some very powerful convictions. He has come to know in his lengthy Christian life at this point, he's come to know God's character. He knows that God keeps his word. He knows that God is faithful and good. He already confessed way back in Genesis 18 that he believes this, the judge of all the earth shall do right. And so when this command comes, this command that seems to spin his head, when this command comes, Abraham doesn't debate with God. He knows his place. He knows that God is the creator and he is but a creature. He doesn't ask for clarification. He doesn't stall. He doesn't murmur. God has spoken. So look at verse 3 and trace with me the steps of his obedience. In verse 3, Abraham makes all the provisions for a burnt offering for his own son's destruction. Even though he has hundreds of servants himself, he's a wealthy man at this point. Notice what he does in verse 3. 
he chops the wood for the burnt offering himself. And then he loads the wood that will be used to burn his son's lifeless corpse. His obedience is personal. And look at what he does even in verse 6. He wants to make sure that all the elements for this burnt offering and sacrifice are there. And so in verse 6, he's the one who takes the fire pot and the knife. He mentally runs through everything that will be necessary to obey God. He doesn't want to get to the location and be lacking anything. Just as Abraham prepares all the necessary means, and listen carefully to the point of analogy. Just as Abraham prepares all the necessary means for the sacrifice of his son, our heavenly father did the same on a cosmic scale with the sacrifice of his only son. The father made the green hill on which the cross was set. The father made the iron ore and put it in the ground out of which nails and spears would be fashioned. The father formed the tree and prepared the wood out of which the cross would be made. Abraham prepared for three days. But the heavenly father prepared for the sacrifice of his son from before the foundation of the world. Look back to Abraham's obedience on verse 3. Notice he doesn't sleep in that day. Before he goes on his journey, he gets up early. Just as he had done in Genesis chapter 21, after God commanded him to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, he doesn't delay. And so look what Abraham does. He gets up early. He wants to get an early start on obedience. And he takes with him Isaac and two servants. He doesn't say, and by the way, this is one of the pious ways, and I say pious with scare quotes around it. This is one of the pious ways that so many believers try to avoid obedience to God's command. They will say something like this. Well, God has commanded me something very weighty. This is a serious matter. It calls for much prayer. So I'll call everyone together for a day of prayer that we may know what the will of God is and and we'll wait on the Lord to see what his command is. Some are very gifted, and maybe I'm speaking to you. Some are very gifted at using prayer as an escape from obedience to God's clear command. When confronted with a clear mandate from the triune God, these are the people who will postpone by saying, well, I'm just praying for guidance. I know people who've been praying for guidance about God's commands for 10 years. What is called for is immediate obedient action. Much of the beauty of obedience is in its immediacy, in its promptness. Listen to David describe such obedience in Psalm 119. He said, I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. But it's not just immediate obedience. It's ongoing obedience. Look carefully at what happens in those three days in verses 3 to 10. Abraham doesn't get cold feet as they travel for three days. <coughs> so now he and Isaac and the servants arrive at the base of Mount Moriah. Now the terrain gets steep. From here they must proceed on foot. Abraham instructs the servants to wait there for them. He doesn't tell them his plans, but look carefully at verse 5. He merely says to the servants that he and Isaac are going to go it alone now, and they're going to worship, we're told in verse 5. Abraham and Isaac, in verse 6, head up the mountain. Wood, torch, and knife in hand. Isaac is now like a condemned man carrying the cross on his back. Do you see once again the type and the picture of Christ? Here's the beloved only son carrying the wood on his back. 
This is truly prophetic of Jesus since we read of him in John 19, carrying and bearing his own cross. In verse 9 through 10, the narrative seems to slow down to an agonizing crawl. They come to the spot. Abraham builds an altar in verse 9. And then Abraham lays Isaac on the altar in verse 10, on top of the wood, and binds him there. The pictures and types of Christ are coming at us fast and furious here, but one that is particularly clear, it's striking, it's beautiful to the Christian, is the only son's passive obedience. Look at it carefully. Isaac doesn't protest. He willingly submits to his loving father. And so we see in verses 6 through 10, the father laying on the son the wood for the sacrificial offering. At every step of the way, Isaac cooperates and obeys his father. He trusts his father implicitly. Abraham, by the way, could not have offered Isaac in this burnt offering without Isaac's consent and cooperation since Isaac was the younger, stronger, faster of the two. But Isaac makes no attempt to escape. Don't think for a second that Isaac is struggling. He makes no attempt to escape. Isaac's cooperation foreshadowed Jesus and his willingness to go to the cross. Just as we read in Isaiah 53, those familiar words, listen carefully and see if you see this, the the willingness, the passive obedience of Isaac being a picture of Christ. For example, we're told on Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the father who laid the sin on the son, just as Isaac was put on the altar. We're told in Isaiah 53, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Isaac meekly acquiesces to Father Abraham's command without any argument. We're told in Isaiah 53, prophesying Christ, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was the father who poured out his wrath as Jesus was functioning as your substitute just as Abraham is now in our text, just about to pour out his wrath via a knife on his son Isaac. When we think about the passive obedience of Isaac, we have a type here, we have a picture. Isaac is laying down his life. He's not struggling, he's not running. He's willingly laying down his life. And doesn't this foreshadow what Jesus would save himself in John 10? When Jesus said, my father loves me because I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Isaac here is picturing for us the son's willingness to lay down his life in obedience to his father's command. Now the real drama, if you've been following the literary movement of the text, the real drama comes to its zenith in verses 10 through 11. Look at this carefully. Abraham unsheaths his gleaming knife that had been sharpened. He raises it high so he can get full downward thrust. And before he can begin the downward plunge into the chest of Isaac, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the way, we know it's Jesus. Look at verse 15 and 16. Because this one who's called the angel of the Lord, that's a, that's a, a common title for the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Godhead in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord stops him, we're told in verse 15 and 16. 
showing once more in his providence that God is seldom early but never late. The reason the Lord stops Abraham is because the Lord has already made a provision for the sacrifice. Look at what that provision is. Look carefully how this, the text builds up to this. In verse 8, Abraham says to Isaac, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And then when Abraham looks up, when he stopped from sacrificing his son, look at verse 13. We read, Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham calls the name of this place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mound of the Lord it shall be provided. Now look at Abraham's answer carefully in verse 8. When, Ab- when Isaac asks, where's the lamb for the burnt offering in verse 7? Look at Abraham's answer. He gives an answer that uh, is a firm belief in substitutionary atonement in verse 8. God will provide the lamb. That day the lamb became Isaac's substitute. God rescued Isaac with a substitute that he provided. Abraham, in sacrificing that ram, is confessing he has nothing to offer to God. He doesn't even provide the ram. Just as God saved Isaac by a substitute, he saves you and I by a substitute. Isn't that the message of 2 Corinthians 5? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Isn't that what Peter says in 2 Peter 2? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. I hope tonight the message of a penal, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice has not grown blasé to you. Robert Murray McShane said, Often the doctrine of Christ as my substitute appears common and well-known and having nothing new in it, and therefore I am tempted to pass it by and go to some scripture that is more interesting. McShane says, this of course is the devil's white hot lie. For Jesus in my place, Jesus as my substitute, Jesus as my lamb is ever new and glorious. Of course, McShane is exactly right. Isn't that your tendency in mind to to find novelties and peripheral ideas to be enamored with instead of returning again and again to the core, the center of the Bible, which is the Lamb of God dying in the place of sinners. As you see God provide a, a sacrificial lamb so that Isaac could be spared, remember this, there's one difference in the type. God did not spare his son. He didn't stop the knife. Even though he loved his son infinitely more than Abraham loved Isaac, our father brought the knife down on his son. Look at the providence of God, even in the smallest details. The same God who created this ram brings him into a tangle of limbs and branches and then holds him there for Abraham. And I have to point out something about God as the provider. Sandy and I have many beloved friends and family members in the charismatic movement. We're from Oklahoma, and so I'm sorry. And these friends and family members love to toss around the name of God as Jehovah Jireh. They're health and wealth folks. And they do that because it's always in connection with God providing a blessing of wealth or a new job or a new car or something of that sort. How sad. 
how this cheapens our God. For when we are told in the text that the name of the Lord in verse 14 is God who provides. The Lord here isn't referring to providing a raise, but to providing a savior. When Abraham says in verse 14, the mount of the Lord, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. He's uttering a formal prophecy of the one who will come and be the atoning substitute. Well, look at Abraham's hope in the resurrection and what he's believing, what is going through his mind as he makes that three-day trudge to Mount Moriah. The New Testament lets us in on Abraham's thought processes. Look carefully. Keep one finger here, but look at Hebrews 11, and you can see what Abraham was thinking as he and his son went on this journey. Hebrews 11, a very important aspect of this story that closes the loop for us. Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19, we read these words. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Hebrews eleven eighteen, Of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Concluding that. Now look, stare at Hebrews eleven nineteen Because the Holy Spirit gets us inside Abraham's head. We are told what Abraham, his reasoning process, that he'd engaged in a syllogism. He had major premise and minor premise, and he drew this conclusion. Look at it in verse 19 of Hebrews 11. Abraham concluded that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Apparently, apparently Abraham, on this three-day trip to Moriah, had been pondering. Remembering. Because when they got to the foot of the mountain, what does he say? What does Abraham say to the two servants? He says in Genesis 22, 5, You stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And we, that is Isaac and I, we will come back to you. He tells them he and Isaac will return. So he obviously believes the following. That he's going to sacrifice Isaac. And then God will raise him from the dead. He knows that God has to keep his promises that in Isaac all the nations will be blessed. And so here's how faith reasons. Abraham says, I will go. I'll follow through, sacrifice my son. He'll be burnt to a char. And God will raise him up. Because God cannot lie. He has to keep his word. Abraham is thinking, God made an infertile couple fertile. Why is it so hard to believe that God can make a dead son alive? Abraham's faith reasoned and drew inferences and implications. Jesus would say later in John 8 that Abraham saw my day and was glad. Abraham had stood where Jesus died, for Moriah would later be called Calvary. What makes Abraham's faith so amazing was this. There were no instances of the dead being raised yet. It wasn't as though Abraham could call to mind the the Shunammite woman's son in 2 Kings 4 or the daughter of Jairus in Luke 8 or Lazarus in John 11 and then be able to believe that something similar was going to take place in the life of Isaac. No, Abraham reasoned from what he knew of God, that God was reliable. 
he would keep his promises of a seed and that God was all-powerful. Putting this alongside the command to kill his son Isaac, or Abraham reasoned this way, I guess God will raise him up. Abraham expected resurrection, but what he got was a substitute. How do we apply this word? Let me make several applications to us tonight. I want you to see and notice very carefully from our text. Whatever is needed for the redemption of sinners, Jehovah Jireh supplies. Do you need a substitute? He supplies a spotless lamb, Jesus. Do you need faith to believe in him? He gives the gift of saving faith. Do you need repentance? He freely gives it. Everything that is needed for the salvation of sinners, Jehovah Jireh supplies. The second application. God blesses the fear of the Lord. Look carefully at verse 12 and what the Lord says to Abraham when he stops him. And I want you to notice what the Lord blesses. He doesn't just bless faith. He blesses also the fear of the Lord. In verse 12, the Lord says, Do not lay your hand on the ladder, do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God commends and blesses Abraham's reverence and fear of the Lord. Third application. Abraham teaches us again the meaning of faith. It is trusting in God's clear word despite all evidences to the contrary. Abraham teaches us the rightness in all times of Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Even when God's commands make no sense to you, it's wisest to obey. Even when God's promises seem outlandish, it's wisest to believe them. A very important application. God will test your faith. He tests the faith of every one of his children repeatedly. God will test your faith and will stretch you. And he will keep testing you. Abraham's maturity and and recent spiritual successes was the occasion for more and greater testing. God doesn't put heavy burdens on weak shoulders. He grows and educates your faith. Testing it by trials which increase little by little as you go in, as you grow in grace. Expect your trials to deepen as you proceed towards heaven. Don't think that as you mature, the path will grow smooth. As you learn to use your spiritual armor better, God will give you harder battles to fight. Abraham is an old man. He's a mature believer. God will test you. Be prepared to believe and obey in the difficult times. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you for our substitute, for our lamb, the one prepared from before the foundation of the world. And we praise you, O Lord, that you indeed are our Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who has provided for us. And so, Lord, give us a faith like Abraham's, We thank you that you have already provided the substitute, the son of Isaac, even Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.